Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, quotes for life from my guest today are to be curious, not judgmental, and that confidence is silent while insecurities are loud. Advice from Milan Kosick, the head of Sixth Sense at Hexagon, which is on a mission to enable an autonomous and sustainable future. Sixth Sense is a new open innovation platform where ambitious scaling startups can connect with world-class companies to solve some of humanity's biggest challenges. And it's a big opportunity. Hexagon's technologies are used to manufacture 90% of aircraft, 75 percent of smartphones and 95 percent of every automobile produced worldwide. Tell us more, Milan. Welcome to Changemakers. Thank you very much, Michael. It's good to be here. I mean, that, that's quite a to-do list for one company, to be that involved in so many of the things we, I suppose we take for granted, but are so vital. Well, it's, it's one of those things that I found out 25 years ago when I started. I had no idea what Hexagon did or did not do. And then you start finding out that just about everything that you can touch with your fingers is touched by Hexagon products is a, an amazing thing, which is you know, hidden parts of manufacturing that we don't necessarily see on a daily basis. That's kind of what we do, I guess. Is the best and I suppose that, that's what listeners need to think about is that you know, this, this is like the kind of like the power inside most of the things that you use that are electronically manufactured, technologically manufactured. Well, everything, everything that anybody sees in front of them, like you're sitting right now at a desk and there's a monitor and a computer and a keyboard and a mouse and a chair and all that stuff. Somebody somewhere designed it, tested mm. it, made it and shipped it to your place. And there's a whole process that's involved. And that's kind of the place where we exist. And I think we tend to sometimes focus on, you know, software parts of things and forget about there's also physical things around physical it. Physical things, yeah. yeah. What we so, make. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're working in a very exciting new part of the business, Sixth Sense, very much something that you've been really working on. It's just come to market. Tell, tell us about it. Well, Hexagon, like every other mature company uh, in the world, tends to struggle with innovation, which is you have your part of the business where you make money. And then you try at the same time to be disruptive and try to innovate and try to do new things. In most instances, there's a few exceptions, of course, that tends to collide with priorities. So you try to disrupt essentially your own business, which in most instances doesn't work out. So I had an idea with a few people around me that maybe this way to do this is to create a platform where we can better engage startups so that there's a more concrete conversation about what they do and how maybe we can combine the forces. And ideally, they have the innovation and you know the drive and the ideas and we have the structure and other things to help them essentially scale so, so, just, so hence and also hence the name right six exactly the, six the premonition the view see around exactly. corners see the future right i mean exactly I mean it, I mean it must be an exciting day job where a lot of what you're thinking and doing and investing and helping grow is very much the future I, I don't know. Ever since I was a kid, I always liked things that are not around, which is, you know, science fiction and Star Wars and E.T. and all the other stuff. But what it what it's possible is always most really exciting to me. Mm. And I think that's kind of what's driven me in, in my life to get to this place. And I think, you know, having a little bit of optimism in today's world, which is always full of pessimism in general, is a good place to be and kind of to try to foretell where everything goes. And, and you know as well, you've talked to other people, I'm sure. It's hard to tell what the future is, but we can at least guess a little. Bit, yeah, but, but you talk about those. That, I mean, those iconic movies, which I suppose are are science fiction, and some people say, "Well, we, you know, we'll, let's turn them into science fact." But you, you're into science design, right? You know that actually a lot of this is about. Well, how do you make it? How do you create it? How what the physical nature of that? And I, I, I was really interested that the, the, the book you you say 
changed your life was the design of everyday things by Don Norman, which is very much about these products that we use every day as as, as key tools of communication and 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 sort of central to the way users enjoy them. There's a strong design ethic, isn't there, in in, in some of your thinking here? Correct. I what I learned over the last 15 years is first simplicity rules. So you have to create things that humans can understand and you know utilize to the certain extent. The second one is design as a core and not, I think not design in a classic sense of creating objects, but design is creating solution, design is creating useful things is really what drives things. But there's a main component to all of this, which is what a lot of mature companies sometimes miss, which is you have to talk to people. You have to get out there and talk to people who will not even tell you, but you will see things they deal with in everyday life and things you have an opportunity to solve with them, without them, or otherwise. And I think that's why kind of Don Armand's book affected me, which was the idea of this kind of simplicity is the rules and something just makes sense. And that's what you have to do to create better things. Well, you talk about communicating with people. I mean, of course, you're working with your first ever cohort of scaling startups, of, of companies that um, you've chosen because they all, they offer a a glimpse of the future. What, what is there is there a common denominator in the people that you're working with and, and, and the things that they're doing, do you think? I mean, are they design-led? I think I would say by far, vast majority in our current cohort are very technical people. They're people who have histories in organizations they worked before, some people who have ran startups and sold them mm. and done everything else. But I would say the vast majority is really technically focused. They do. Part of the reason why they are in Sixth Sense is a way to get to customers, to get to the opportunities, and I think to also get help on our PR and marketing, how to hone their message so that they focus on things that people's problems, you know, they're going to solve rather than focus on technology, which is what a lot of startups initially in our pitch in March 16th were really focusing on. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, as you said, is give me the problem and a solution. Don't try to tell me about all the technology and the stuff we can, because most people won't be able to get it anyway. So I mean, I'm just thinking about the win-win here. I mean, I mean, obviously you can see the scale-ups might go on to become tomorrow's unicorns, tomorrow's, you know, great, great success stories in this kind of B2B manufacturing space. In terms of hexagons sort of win out of this, I mean, are these going to be in effect, your your manufacturing arm, you know, the, the businesses that are creating those those products for the future. I mean, I'm just wondering what 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 the business gets out of creating. I guess the the incubator setting. One part is cultural. Uh, one part is to influence the culture of organization to be less risk averse, to be able to embrace change and to be able to embrace new opportunities. That's one part of it, which is part of the goal what our CEO kind of gave to us. The second part is more opportunistic in sense, which is to find things that we otherwise would not be able to do. Either we don't have the right skill set or the right ideas or the right way to execute those kinds of things. You know, we can all joke around that our success is if any of the startups succeed. It is also true that if any of the startups succeed with Hexagon would be the best outcome for everything. Mm. But it's not necessarily the, the set goal. The set goal is try to help them scale. And if that scale, they scale with us, that's great. If they just scale with our help, that's great. If they scale on their own, too bad for us for not for missing an opportunity, right? Now, I love these advice pieces you gave in terms of quotes that had 
change your life and advice that you give to listeners, be curious, not judgmental. Confidence is silent while insecurity is allowed. And I, I mean, in, in addressing those, Milan, I mean, I, I wonder whether you could take us back a bit, your own life, your own growing up, your, your dad was a nuclear engineer, your mum was an architect. I mean, I'm just wondering what that kind of environment gave you in terms of the outlook that it, it provoked, you know, and, and, and I guess the, the setting for you growing up and becoming you know, take it, taking a life in technology, but also a life where you're designing things, making things, manufacturing things. Not to make a really long story, but, you know, I was born in then Yugoslavia, now Serbia. Both of my parents were first college educated people in their families. My grandfather was a, a dairy farmer. So they instilled the power of education as the way to get ahead, especially being an immigrant. We moved to United States when I was 15 years old. Mm. The only way to fight for yourself and to kind of ex, you know excel is to be really good at what you do at the end of the day. I've always been a little bit of an odd guy out. My brother, who was ahead of me, is a PhD from uh, Northeastern and he works for MIT and he's always been super, super successful, academically speaking. I've always been interested in music and art and other things and try to co- kind of combine those creative endeavors together with, you know, engineering. As a funny anecdote, you know, Eastern Europeans and Indians are very similar, which is that you have choices, a lot of things to study as long as they're engineering and medicine. Uh, so, so my mother, who was probably the primary influence in my life, always said is her thing was always pragma- pragmatism. Mm. You have to do something practical first so that then you can do things you love. Because her being an immigrant, her cornerstone was you always have to have financial safety in order to be able to execute other things. So part of me, for example, while why am I still at Hexagon, why I've been working for the same company is that, you know, I like security and some of the other things, even though at the same time, I've done a lot of new things at Hexagon. So it's like a balance. But I'm things. also wondering, I mean, you know, I mean, to your point about you can study engineering or medicine. I mean, it's interesting that on engineering, especially, is that so many of the things that you're passionate about, culture, creativity, music, seems to be finding its way into all sorts of interesting intersections in the way that other influences are being brought into product design and design thinking and I suppose do you think that that kind of that kind of background gave you that versatility that creative imagination as well as the discipline to go on and study the sorts of things that you did I mean I have a, I have a great example I think where this all kind of collides which is music technology so I did I'm a, I'm a certified music engineer and I did music engineer when one would have to splice tapes by hand and listen to how it goes you can do that now with a mouse click at the same time, you don't need, I studied piano for 12 years, but today you can have computer algorithms essentially write music for you. And now with great accessibility to music is great for a boom of people to be able to in, indulge in things like music. The problem you always have is you also have a lot of crappy music because everybody can do it. Mm. But I think anything that helps the society move forward by essentially making and democratizing the access to technology I think is helpful. There's obviously, you know, Michael, there's obviously nefarious things and good things and otherwise, but I think in general, what kind of got me on this, on this, on this road is looking at what does technology to do the things that are complicated, simpler. And some of the stuff, for example, in music has approached that money. And you'll see it. There was last five years, it's an explosion of availability of music and creativity. I love, I love the democratizing of it. I mean, I, I interviewed Phil Liebin, who you, you might know founded Evernote. He came from the then Soviet Union, USSR, in, at a similar age as you came from Yugoslavia. And he told this very arresting story about his first experience of walking into a US supermarket for, for the first time. And, you know, and, and sort of this sense of, 
the difference that the States made to him and just the way he saw things. But actually, it was made altogether more vivid because of the experiences that he had come from. In terms of your own experience of arriving in the States at 15, you'd have been highly conscious of that, presumably, in terms of, you know, growing up in your teens in one country, coming to a new country and and starting a new life. What, What was that effect, do you think? Has it had a lasting effect on you in terms of the way you look at things? I mean, it, it, I would agree with what he said, which is this, you, I, I did the same experience with the supermarket. You go in and you're over, I think I specifically remember cereal aisles, mm. you know, and in Yugoslavia, we had cornflakes and a couple other ones, and that was about it. And all of a sudden you have like 40 different things. Now, I'm also going to confess that I don't think that's necessarily a good thing either. I think you have this paralysis by choice in a lot of instances when you have an abundance of things, which is kind of when you go back to Don Norman, if you design things well, you don't need so many things in life. Mm. But my experience, I think, more had to do with the overwhelming amount of media and choices, which never existed before, which in some ways made my life much simpler when I lived in Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia in the 70s and early 80s was a wonderful place to live. And coming over, just opportunities opened up, but also you had to deal with an amazing amount of influx of influence and try to sift what's important and what's not important. And then kind of Mm -hmm. try to deal with that idea uh, of abundance as a problem, not necessarily as a solution of things. I suppose the abundance is also what has driven the innovation landscape, hasn't it? You know, know, being ever more efficient, doing it better, faster, cheaper, these sorts of things. But of course, you're pointing to a landscape that may have new values now. We want things to last for longer. We want to know the provenance of how and where they've been made. We want to feel good about the things that we buy. I mean, I'm just wondering, you know, how, how you feel about the transformation, not only of technology, but the transformation of society and our expectation about the sorts of things that companies are going to do to be part of the of the answer, not, not necessarily part of the problem. I think hmm, it, it's a it's a it's a great question. The the way I look at the general direction of things is the usefulness of the actual innovation. Like if I hear about one more chat app or one more video sharing app or some of the other things, I do question the sanity of venture capital to yet inject another $300 million to yet another thing that does the same thing as something else. But uh, part of the reason kind of why Sixth Sense was birthed is we hope to attract interest and money from education level to interest to advanced manufacturing, because I have this, I've done some other podcasts where we got really deep into these ideas that innovation at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much of it is, it has to do something useful for the society. Mm-hmm. And I think there's been general neglect about the importance of manufacturing in today's society from both uh, school level all the way into being a, having as a job. And I think we maybe have to have to reset a little bit as to how we value evaluation uh, innovation, like what innovation is. But, but it's also, I wonder whether it's because the change of setting, you know, when you look at, you know, the 2010s is that we would judge innovation by the kind of fang companies, the consumer technology brands, the Facebooks, the Amazons, and, you know, the Netflix and so on. Whereas, of course, what you're talking about is a much less understood part of the technological world, which is how it affects B2B. But but some would argue, but this is where the substance really is in terms of if you're looking, if you're looking for the way and the signals for 
the shape of things to come. It's look to our manufacturers and the processes that will make things more efficient, more more carbon neutral, presumably more progressive in the way that things are delivered. Do you think that's a fair characterization? In, to a certain extent, yes. I, I kind of, going back to your original thing, you know, my sixth sense is so-called informed intu- intuition, which is knowing certain things and then just feeling that's the place where they're supposed to go. And one of those informed intuition kind of insights that I gleamed over the last 12 years is innovation used to flow from the research labs and everything else into consumer world. There's much, much more flow of innovation from consumer world back into us in industry and innovation labs, meaning that my perception of B2B versus B2C innovation is they're getting much, much more close in what they do, meaning a person that loves the one-click order from Amazon doesn't want to go to an industrial website and go through 46 forms to fill them out to do exactly the same experience, meaning that that collision of what is acceptable in B2B and what is acceptable to B2C is no longer as wide as it was, let's say, in 2010. To me, that's been the main driver, which is kind of the consumerism in the B2B industry. You have to take into account what so it's, people, conver- it's converging. It's converging, yeah. People yeah. expect certain things. So, and I suppose when you when we look at things like the metaverse, we look at the the next big steps. That gamification, that that style of doing things, is presumably how we're also going to deliver productivity and outcomes. I have a prime example. We were designing a device and had joysticks on it. The standard in the industry was one way of setting it up, and we just copied what game pads look like and produce that because that's what the the youth is expecting. I mean, I'm 50. Mm. I've played video games for all my life and, and I expect the same thing, which is you have to start making those connection points because otherwise you're going to create stuff that nobody's going to use just because you like to make them complex and fancy just so that you can make yourself feel good. And make it simple. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I love that example because it reminds me of that, you know, the great saying of if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. I mean, the historic role of, of technology was supposed to be, it would free us. It would make us, you know, when you, when you, I've interviewed people like Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, he'll, he'll often, t- you know, he'll say in interviews that the early sort of technology pioneers saw technology as this great creator of personal freedom. Um, and actually things like how we feel about work, how we feel about the products that, that we buy. I mean, it feels like, this is a big part of your to-do list in terms of creating environments that people are actually going to enjoy what they use, how they build it, how they create it. Well, you have to, like metaverse is a great thing. I think it's a great buzzword. I think about eight people are going to use it for the next 10 years and eventually there'll be something. I, you know, Because there's been, there's been a promise of metaverse since 1990s and we just never seem to be getting there. It's, it has to, I think you have to peel back the layers and to find out what exactly is useful, makes your life easy. I think a lot of things in advanced manufacturing, for example, are, are a lot of videos show factories with no people. I don't think that's the future. I think the future is to augment what we do with useful outcomes. I think I, I agree a hundred percent with you that especially since COVID, our overload of technology, devices, and everything is causing general anxiety, addiction. I mean, we all like sit with these phones every day and do stuff and everything else. And I think there has to be a little bit of a reset as we come out of this kind of, let's call it tense period of the last three years of, I think, deciphering and, what and things are useful. And is the reset possible? Because, you know, you said in your own your own new normal was too many yeah. meetings, not enough exercise and general anxiety. I thought, goodness, I, I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it possible? I don't know. You know, we, we at Sixth Sense run a, a, a particular, let's call it um, aspirational place, which is no a-hole rule and generally be nice. 
I mean, I think people is world full of people who are very talented, but also not very nice people. Mm. I mean, and I don't, I think we need to work on a place in the world where just we have to be considerate and genuinely interested in each other and be honest. And I think if we're not honest and transparent, this stuff will always prevail. There will always be some suspicion of ulterior motive and everything else. And to me, you know, you're right. You ask me, is it possible? Oh, the optimist in me tells me like everything is possible. The pessimist in tell me, in tell me always says, oh, this is never going to happen, but I don't know. Maybe there's but, some. But there, but there is a tremendous kindness in your in your advice pieces and the lockdown list that, that, yeah. go, that goes with this. And I, I suppose we'll, we'll go into that in, in the final part of the interview. But before we do that, I mean, what I'm interested in is your incredible vantage point across a kind of global vista, if you will, in terms of the way things, how things, what things are made in the future. You know, when you look at a business that's part of, you know, the manufacture of 90% of aircraft, 75% of smartphones, 95% of every automobile produced worldwide, you, you've got a vantage point that, that, that few others will have in terms of just where things are going. There's a good saying that capital follows ideas. What are the ideas it's going to follow when you look what gets you excited in terms of where things are going? Where are we going to see the big breakthroughs, do you think, in, in, in your world and the sort of things that you're doing? I think you'll see a lot of improvements in human-machine interfaces. How do we interact with robots and automation? I think you're going to see a lot of AI machine learning, but very specific. Today, I mean, or joking aside, of all the applications, about 40% of the companies did exactly the same thing. The companies have to get much better in telling us what exactly do they contribute and what they do. And I think machine vision, putting eyes on things, allows uh, a broad scope of automating tasks. And I think the, the real key to, to future of our domain is making humans being superhumans and then taking the tasks that are, let's call them low value, low level, pick and place, those kinds of things. You resort those to, to robots because fatigue doesn't exist in a robot. It does exist in humans. And you let humans think about bigger issues and bigger problems. And we think that's where the focus of really the future of innovation in our domain is going to happen. Because this is, I suppose, gets to the crux of it in terms of well, where is technology taking us? Because you know, one, one school of thought, you know, if, if you read, you know, I'm just thinking about the Stephen Hawking's point about AI being you know, more dangerous than nuclear weapons to humanity. Or give it, it's like giving an infant nuclear weapons, I think he said at the, at the time. And there's a couple of new books about that. On the other hand, if you look at the sort of the previous story of technology, has been that its job has been to find efficiencies and presumably to free up time and potential to do things that are are, are more worthwhile. I suppose the point is is that in a world that feels a bit queasier about things, a little less certain, what would you want people to hear about the potential of technology to be a game changer for people's lives, a force for good in the world in terms of where things go from here? I don't know. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound somewhat political now. I think part of the problem today is that the technology is not equalizing things. It's actually making a disproportionate effect on wealthy versus poor, which is people who own the technology are becoming increasingly wealthy and people who don't are becoming increasingly poor. And that's not a sustainable model for humanity. You cannot have a society where people are so desperately different from each other because things that like revolutions and armed conflicts happen because of that. I think the only true ways to do is if technology enables us to be more equal or have a more equitable asset access to things. And you asked me earlier, you know, what do I think about optimistically? I don't know. I, I hope that people who lead countries and lead the world and everything else, rather than trying to rewarding the few, see that the key to the forward movement of society is if everybody benefits. 
And I think in everybody benefits, then we can truly get to the place you just described, which is that robots do things and we sip champagne on the beach. But that that ultimate yeah. utopia only happens if if a general benefit is for the society, not just for the few. Right. So it's got to be democratizing yeah. in, in the way that it does things. Let's let's move on to those advice pieces. You you talked about the famous Walt Whitman quote, be curious, not not judgmental, most recently used by Ted Lasso in the uh, in the Apple TV uh, series. Love, um, love, love Ted Lasso. Love Ted Lasso. T- tell us tell us why. Tell, tell, tell us tell us what's the learnable lesson that people could take from that. I think it's it's we we get all trapped like especially in workspace that when we discuss ideas or we critique things people tend to take it very personally because obviously they think it's an attack on our persona i think you have to be curious and not judgmental because you can't judge the person creating those things or creating ideas what you have to do is focus on the actual outcome and the idea and a solution to a problem or whatever else it is and we have to kind of disconnect from me being part of this versus this being something that we all need to discuss and be less judgmental. But to me, there's another part of it, which is encourages people just to be generally nice, which is what Ted Lasso's kind of thing is. You know, the one of the other famous quotes for Ted Lasso is like, hey, this is this is so-and-so. Now you met another cool person. I think that sets mm. up a stage for a certain positivity in the relationships between people, which is what maybe allows us to be curious and not judgmental. Well, and I think I think this point about judgment or, or the or the absence of it is integral to the other quote that you provide, which is confidence is silence, insecurities allowed. I mean, I mean, insecurities usually involve quite a lot of judgment, don't they? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird that I'm saying that while I'm on a podcast, you know, promoting Sixth Sense. But uh, it's just uh, it's what I truly believe is that less said, more listened is is really a, a way to do things. I think we tend to find I don't know. This is, again, going to get slightly political. The people who complain the most about certain things tend to be the ones who actually do do, do those certain things. Mm-hmm. Whether, whether they're criminal or otherwise, it doesn't really matter. But I think the, the idea here is that we have to have a forum where we have to be confident that our ideas matter. We have to carefully listen so we can align people to help us execute those ideas. But even more importantly, we have to be willing to say that we are wrong because it is it seems to be a, a badge of courage in today's corporate, you know, especially America, that you never admit you're wrong about anything. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think in general society, that is a really dangerous place to go because we're all humans. We all and make presu- And presumably, in, in, you, know, you talked about, about the idea of a reset earlier in, in, in the conversation. Mm-hmm. I mean, the vulnerability of, of life is, of course, is that you don't get everything right. And I wonder whether that leadership style you know you're is going to endure your you know your, your top tip for us is don't worry about things you have no control over but of course to some degree you could argue that the role of the innovator the role of the technology technologist is to is to take control of the unknown isn't it to sort of like you know provide the answers i mean is, is there a is there I a mean, fault line there milan <laughs> i mean i i you know just ask my wife how many times i've been wrong is always a funny story but i think you talked about the the, the first piece which is I think it's also part of this journey of knowing innovation is also knowing when to shut up. Like I think you have to know either when you've been defeated and you pull away and then you reset and you come back, or you just let the other people have their say and move on and fight for another day. I think being noisy all the time and trying to prove your point every time and everything else doesn't work. And why am I telling you that? I was that person 15 years ago. I was mm-hmm. a person who was always right and had to tell everybody how nobody knew what they were talking about. You know how far that got me? Didn't get me too far. Mm-hmm. But if you reset your expectations 
and are just more strategic in where you approach things, I think gets you the way forward ultimately. Maybe not like tomorrow, but maybe a month, but that's the whole, uh, maybe age, maybe age provides that. Well, age, age is a context. And I suppose my last question is I'm, I'm sort of thinking about, you know, this, this very soulful interview, very reflective interview, I think in terms of, you know, what, what makes you tick, but of course you are not only creating something new with Sixth Sense, you're, you're living it now. And, you know, you, you've got the experience of, of working and helping these young firms that are going through, you know, that, that sort of that, that journey of growth, that journey of, of, of progress. How does that affect you? Do you think not, not only, I suppose, you know, when you, when you were there in as, as the kind of custodian and the person that is meant to provide some of the answers and the certainties, does, does that experience change you? And, and if so, to what, to what end, where, where do you think it's taking you? Maybe I'm not cut out to be a VC ever because I genuinely care about these people. I think the advantage of our, of what we do is we're a small program. We only have seven companies in our cohort, which I think allows us and my team, because we all take responsibility for two companies, is to get a much closer relationship with what they do. I think the key of creating this close relationship is what differentiates us, which is we are able to kind of more focus on their true needs. And more importantly, I think we can have a true, you know, honest conversation, no holds barred, tell them what they're really not doing well and what they're doing well. And so far, the response has been, they all very much appreciate it. They're all very interested in having a more intimate relationship in that sense, to have those honest conversations so that we don't waste their time at the end of the day. And, you know, you ask what, what happens, you know, if any of these companies fail, I'm sure I'm going to be torn on the inside because we were part of that journey. Not, and I know some of them will and some of them won't, but it's we get this really close connection because it's a small program to try to truly, truly care and help these companies grow. And for that reason, I'm sure we wish them all the very best and wish them well. Milan Kosing, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers and sharing the story of Sixth Sense and your own remarkable adventure. Thank you very much, Michael. Now for some bonus material, because we're joined by Richard Heggie, who's one of the collaborators with Milan on the Sixth Sense project. And we thought we would give listeners an insight into what it takes to create something brand new within a major corporation with the opportunity of changing businesses and actually powering progress. Richard, welcome to Changemakers. Tell us a little bit about your perspective of working on the Sixth Sense project with Milan. I think it's been a fantastic opportunity. Look, my background is finance. I built most of my career in banking in terms of, I call it life 1.0. But what I did was I learned a lot, well, I learned a fair bit about innovation and what it takes to bring innovation into more mature and established industries and maybe industries where there was a bit of a legacy of uh, having built products within their four walls and then taking them to market. So not a natural bedfellow in terms of collaboration with the outside world in terms mm. of new innovation. So uh, it's been great working with Hexagon on a sector that I, I, I my dad is very proud of me because he's an engineer. So he, he thinks I've finally got a proper job working with, uh, with <laughs> engineers in terms of building things. Uh, but it's been great to work in a different sector and really 
just have them use me as a bit of a sponge in terms of lessons that I've learned throughout the time. Right. So, so, so question to you, Bay, is when you work with very, very large corporations, how, how do you keep the spirit of innovation alive? Milan and then, and then Richard. Unfortunately, uh, all corporations are about making money. So you have to always term it. How does the innovation that you're trying to bring is going to ultimately affect the bottom line? And anybody who thinks that it's all idealistic is going to get a rude awakening if it's not about some way of generating more revenue and opportunities for the organization. So you have to speak like that. But, but do, I mean, okay, quick supplementary. Do, do you not sort of take into account now the triple bottom line, people profit planet, the, the idea that, that, that purpose has got to be part of that equation in terms of impact. I'll let Richard speak for that. Richard. <laughs> so look, I think you have to take a, a kind of impact, but look, just just I'll take a slightly different view. Look, I think organizations and big, large corporations are full of very entrepreneurial, innovative people. The only difference I see this is, it's just about taking a little bit more of a collaborative approach to recognizing that good ideas can come from outside of the organization as well as within the organization. And the cell is the win-win, right? Mm. It is a combination that should work, that produces the alchemy to drive better value and shareholder value in terms of the end result on both sides. So mm. I think it, it's, a, it's, it's a combination of good leadership, a kind of, as Milan talked about in his interview, maybe a, a curious, not judgmental attitude on both sides, uh, because I think it, it exists in the startup world as well in terms of they are there to disrupt and take on the status quo. They are there to become the companies of the future. So there is a, a certain attitude that they bring on their side. So curious, non-judgmental, and recognition that this is about win-win potential. Right. So last two questions. Milan, I'd like you to take uh, your advice piece to the world of startups, scaling startups, and Richard, to those larger companies that might be listening to this and thinking about, well, actually, we'd like to do something in the innovation space. How do we get it right? In terms of the startup, what advice you'd give to them, Milan, in terms of actually working with a business like you, in terms of how they create the impact, how they get the most out of it? The advice we are already giving to cohort companies right now is two things. Focus on product, products on market, product fit, essentially, or product market fit, and focus on customers. Funding and everything else will come if you fix the first two, because a lot of companies in the stages tend to focus on raising funds and tend to forget that somebody has to be there to actually buy something. And I think our biggest advice for a lot of companies right now is to focus on customers as much as they can. So Richard, a lot of, a lot of very large companies will, you know, there's a graveyard of innovation projects that didn't, didn't go right, right? You know, and... and, and I suppose you've looked at it from financial services through to manufacturing now. Is there a tip in terms of what differentiates programs and projects that seem to win through from those that don't? So I think two bits of advice. So first of all, make sure you pick the right stage of businesses or startups that you want to collaborate with. It can be very sexy to kind of get in rooms with people with cool ideas, but actually look for companies that have already product market fit sorted and are really looking to benefit from the scale of distribution that you can offer. So pick the right companies at the right stage for you to actually have a good chance of making it work. Second thing I guess I've learned throughout my career is recognize that you're going to have to change yourselves to make it work from the corporate side. Uh, and don't underestimate that level of work or change that's required internally for you to really give it a go. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. 
To find out more, head over to changemakers.works. And if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? 